This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Before we get started on this podcast, you remember I was talking about going out to Charlottesville to see that band Old Lady? Well, that's the intro music we decided to use for this episode. They're based out of Northern Jersey. They record in Binghamton. They're on a record label, and hopefully you can find them touring near you, mostly around New York City. So please check out Old Lady. I'm going to put some links up to them on the notes page, and let's get started with the real podcast right now. Thanks for downloading part three of the Salmon River podcast. This is my postmortem. This is where I cover things I may or may not have talked about in the last two podcasts. Those are about what was going on. These are about my thoughts. I'm going to talk about my thoughts from the trip. And I'm going to talk about some of the gear and stuff that won and some of the gear and stuff that failed. Thanksgiving's done with. It's almost December. And there's a huge snowstorm going up in Pulaski right now. And Scott sent me a message on... Instagram asking if I went up. I texted the girlfriend last night. And I said, yo, they're getting two feet of snow tonight. We need to pack the car and go fishing. And then, you know, we realized there's just obligations and stuff. And my kid shows up tomorrow and still putting the house together from Thanksgiving. And I don't think I can go up to experience that snow. They're going to get more tonight 
in Altmar, then we're going to get the entire winter here in DC. Thanksgiving's done with. House Yes is being put back together. I'm back in my office. I haven't really hung out here much since I was loading fly boxes before the trip. So it's nice to get back down in here in the basement. I want to let you know that for the first time ever, we caught tilapia on the fly in four mile run. My client, Mr. West, this is not Kanye, but my client, Mr. West, was not only sight casting tilapia, but he was getting them to eat. He caught three, landed two. These were on a size 14 pink collared beadhead rainbow warrior. It was pretty wild. And he got engaged since then. So congratulations to Mr. West. So we've caught tilapia. We've done Thanksgiving and the tilapia were thrown back. I did not serve them. Is it Pulaski or Pulaski? I don't really know the correct pronunciation of where we're going fishing. And I mentioned in the last episode, this whole place is like Disneyland. There's lots of lines. There's noise. There's backups. A lot of artificial animals and just things that shouldn't be where they are. Disney World, Disneyland shouldn't belong where they are. One's in a desert, one's in a swamp. Well, these fish don't really belong here. We killed off most Atlantic salmon and pretty much anything else that was native. And then we introduced alewives and herring and lampreys into the St. Lawrence seaways. And the whole system's a mess up there. But the whole fishery is kind of a farce. Yes, there's natural reproduction up there, but most of what we're hooking doesn't belong. And the river has a dam on it. So the flow is completely artificial. And the stretches where the fly anglers hang out are designated fly fishing only, and they all congregate there, even though the rest of the river pretty much is wide open. And it's just a whole weird thing. And if you don't fish up there, you don't really get it. And Kevin from Maine Fishing Adventures explained this in the first one or two episodes that, yeah, you're going to go up there and there's going to be crowds and there's going to be lines and you're going to be fishing elbow to elbow and there's going to be camaraderie and conversations and hopefully people are nice to you. It's just a whole weird thing to begin with. I would love to hike in and find some spot that's nice and secluded, but I don't know if there's going to be fish there. So that's one thing you just have to determine is where you're fishing and are you fishing there all day? And how much stuff do you want to bring with you? And how cold are you going to be? And this is what we talked about in the last episode. So there's basically one angler every 30 feet in these busy sections, both sides of the river, if the river bank is fishable. And every one of these people is standing in the water, most likely where the fish want to be. And you've got a big line and you're plunking a leader and line or bait and lures and bobbers and stuff in the water. So it's loud down there, but these fish probably keep hearing like blink, plunk, blink, plunk, blink, 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 all up and down the river. And they're being bombarded with split shot and lines and flies. And if you've got 70 people in a quarter mile of water, your chance of a fish biting your fly is going to go down dramatically. The chances of your fly being bit amongst all the natural foods in the water, plus all the artificials and the artificials that they're constantly seeing every 20 seconds, it's going to put the fish down. It's going to throw things off. It's not like when I was in that quarry over the summer and I had the whole place to myself where they're not seeing flies. There's no noise. They're not being bothered. They're not being disturbed. That was pretty cool and rewarding. 
and I'm totally down with going to the Salmon River, and I know what to expect, and this is what I get. More people, more chances of your fly not getting bit, more chance the fish are just upset, angry, they're being bothered and disturbed all day long. Imagine if there was any other animal that you just kind of flicked something at all day long. It would get mad and leave, right? You start flicking me and throwing things at me, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to stay where I am. So we're trying to catch fish, yet we are disturbing them the entire time. We're probably giving them sore mouths and just bothering them after they bite and they go back down and do they want to eat or do they not want to eat? Is that stonefly real or is it fake? What are these fish eating? Is it what we're throwing? And the whole equation of more anglers, more flies, more stuff in the water, more narrow space, chances of you catching fish going way down. Now, one of the best years Tom and I ever had was 02 or 03 where it absolutely poured. And we had the entire place to ourselves and we were catching and hooking fish nonstop. And hopefully none of this is redundant because I made a bolded list. You got to watch your hole when someone steps out. What do I mean by that? Well, there's someone every 30 feet. So if Jason steps out, that person down from him, you know, if Jason's in the middle, that person's probably going to move upstream to where Jason was. And then the person below him is going to move up and the whole line of angler shifts until that open space finally gets filled in by somebody. Kind of like when you're at a concert and you leave and it's general admission, somebody's going to fill in your spot. You're at a busy bar and you leave, you know, the bar where you got your drink from the bartender and five people are going to fill it in. It's what happens up there. So you kind of have to give people the stink eye. You don't want to get rude, but you know, you want to be a little bit not aggressive with your spot, but determine it that, hey man, someone's in here and they're gonna be back, so keep on walking. Should you leave fish to find fish? Well, Jason and I were downriver the first hour or so, and it just wasn't happening. No one down there was hooking fish, so we went upriver. And sure enough, we saw people catching fish. So we kind of decided that's where we're gonna stay for the next three days. We could have changed it Sunday or Monday morning, but there was a consistent inconsistency to catching fish and it seemed like it was happening in the lower fly zone. I would love to have taken a walk up to the upper fly zone, but my spot would have been taken and I was schlepping all sorts of heavy things. So that's one thing you've got to decide. Is your spot really that good for the entire day that you're going to stay there? Some people do, some people don't. On this trip, I decided to stay put in the same spot with Jason. We had sun on us. We had cobbles to set up our stoves, lay out our gear. We didn't have to wade in too deep. It was a good spot. And if I find a good spot that might have fish, I'm going to stay there versus a good spot that probably doesn't have fish, if that makes sense to you. Narrower water theoretically should concentrate fish. Whether it's deeper and narrow or shallow and narrow, there should be fish concentrated in that area should be. It wasn't always the case. Where we were fishing, there was a big pool, riffle, that kind of narrowed down once it hit the shallow side of our cobbly beach, and it got pretty narrow. And you would think fish concentrated in there, hopefully, but I, I don't know. This water is dark. There's lots of tannins in the bottoms from all the leaves, and you got dead fish in the bottom, and snags of sticks and lines. You can't really see what's down there. So I have no idea if these fish are down there, but that's my theory. I don't know if it was the wind, but we had windproof lighters. 
the cold just wasn't letting us light our windproof butane lighters to get the stoves going. We had to make wind shelters and just huddle around. And I, I don't know what the deal was. These were windproof lighters and they weren't working. I said this earlier, don't stand where you should be fishing or where the fish may be moving through or might be. A lot of people like to find their spot and then wait out 15 feet. If you got a nine to 12 foot rod, you don't have to be that far out, especially if there's an open bank behind you where you're not gonna be hooking trees. There's no reason for you to go in knee deep. Ankle deep in most spots is perfectly fine. You have the reach with your gear. Let those fish go where they want. Fish where you're standing. If you think it's a good spot to stand, fish probably thinks it's a good place to hang out. There was one guy Dirty Bill was just looking at, saying, man, that guy's standing right where all the Browns congregate. Steve, that's the spot I sent you. I know you were a little cold last week up there and you weren't prepared, but I sent you the link for the mitts and it wasn't cold enough for me to wear nitrile gloves, but that's another thing you want to do up there. Uh, being from Southern California, you're probably cold up in Altmar. So nitrile gloves, under fingertipless gloves or by themselves, it's one of those new modern hacks the kids are doing. I just want one good picture of a fish that I can stare at in four or five months from now. Or when someone says, where was your last fishing trip? What'd you catch? I want to show them that good fish. Instead, I got a good screenshot of me with a moving fish. Man, I don't know what these people do that have GoPros and tripods and camera crews with them and are willing to kill a fish for a picture. That's not me. So we did what we could. I can close my eyes and picture it a little bit, but I don't have that good fish picture on my phone that I really want. Every couple of years, I get a really good fish picture. And I like to look at it. Reminds me of the good times when maybe something's going bad or just want to reminisce on an awesome fish. You go up there and people geek out about their waders. They're going to geek out about their lines, what grains they're using. They're going to geek out about their leader formulas and, and their swivels and, and micro swivels and tippet rings. And they want to contemplate depth of their bobber to their fly and the river bottom and all these analytical things. And people want to talk about their rods and where they're made and the flexes and the tips and how far they can roll cast and their white mice and their anchor spots. And they want to talk about their fancy reels and how fast they can stop a moving steelhead, which most often they're not. They're letting these fish just go way downstream and not being able to control them. I want to talk about myself. I'm sitting here in my office and when I look around, yeah, I've got a shoe holder full of reels and, and fingertipless summer gloves and some amnesia line and running line and a whole bunch of ostrich plumes. And then there's some reels behind me on my bookshelf, but it's fly time material. There's a variety of colors and shapes, textures. Things are based on how they move. They flutter, they wiggle, they spin. They sparkle, they iridense, they may undulate, they may quiver, they may wobble. All these things I'm seeking out and purposing on, on this blank canvas a hook. And the whole point up there is to catch a fish. Now, if you don't have confidence in your flies, you're not catching fish. And for me to have more confidence, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to make everything. Just like I cooked pretty much everything from scratch on Thanksgiving. I want to please these fish like I want to please the the guests in my house, but I'm not sticking them with, you know, a fork in the side of their mouth and dragging them across the living room. I'm all about flies and fly time material. As an angler, 
I'm obsessed with materials and how you orient them on a hook and how they look in the daylight in my office now with the low, late fall, early winter light coming in versus this huge artificial tube of LED over me versus how they look on a cloudy day where you're going to get rickets in Altmar with three feet of deep moving water. I have to interpret that and think about how the fish are going to interpret what I'm offering them. And that gives me more confidence. I know my line's going to work. I know my rods are going to work. I can use any rod up there and probably catch a fish. I can use most lines up there and catch fish. But the flies for me, it's different. I'll go through six or seven pheasant tails before I choose the one I want to use for my nymphs. I'm going to look at three different skins in my office of Hungarian partridge for soft hackles for that pheasant tail. I'm going to look at my different types of flashaboo lateral scales for flash on the back and nymphs. I'm going to individually seek out marabou for a hobo. All these intricacies are what keep me entertained and enthralled. And then I have the fun of going through my fly boxes up there. Do I want a natural fly? Do I want a fluorescent fly? Big fly, little fly, one that's going to bounce, one that's going to tumble on the bottom, one that's going to swing in the water column, one that's going to lift up. All these things are what I do as an angler, and it brings me great joy in life, even when they're not biting. And for me, that's just what I geek out about. When I go into Melinda's or All Seasons or Whitaker's, I'm enthralled by all the materials in there and what can be done with them. It's fascinating to me and it never ends. There's always new things to tie with and new combinations to come up with. And that's why I enjoy going up there and at night, what were they biting? What are they going to bite tomorrow? How can I adjust my flies? As long as the weather stays the same and the currents and water flow stay the same, you pretty much have like an in-situ lab you're working at Things of variables are not changing in the water and around it, but your flies can change. You know, what do you want to eat tonight? How often do you hear that in your house, right? You want your favorites. You want things you like. Well, I'm trying to figure that out and offering them. I'm boggled how small some of these flies are that work. And you know, I tied up some big stone flies. Instagram, people are like, man, you got to size that down. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to size them down. I'm going to throw them on Etsy. I'm going to take the flies that work from this trip. I'm going to put them on Etsy so you can purchase them yourselves. Give it a go. But it is boggling to me that a giant-sized rainbow trout that is out in this great lake will come into this river and eat what I'm holding in my hand. I just vacuumed while I was restarting my computer. This is a size 12 pheasant tail jig. And that's what I caught my fish on. That thing is tiny amazing and i could have thrown smaller and probably caught more fish it's not always a big fish you don't have to be a streamer bro up here throwing your six inch articulated thing that looks like a tiger threw up in its cage man you don't have to do that just because you can doesn't mean it's gonna work in fact here it's the minutia of what lives in this river that is what the fish eat Go ahead and throw your monster flies that are going to exhaust you and put a huge hole in a fish's mouth. I feel better that after I torment this fish, I only did a little bit of physical damage to the side of its mouth. The biggest hook I'm using here is a size 4 streamer hook. And that is a 7031 size 4 if you're buying it from Fly Shack. I also found a bunch of weird flies. Like Dumbbell Eyes, Estaz Body, 
squirmy, wormy tail, or all chenille body and just a giant piece of schlappen wrapped around it. You snag things, you find things in the trees, you find things in the shore, and people throw some weird stuff up there. I don't know if it works, but you see it and you question it. How does this work? Well, you don't know. These fish are, they're not people. I have no idea if they really think what I'm throwing at them is what it's intended to be. Sometimes it's just something new and novel. If they're seeing the same stonefly from a fly shop in town all day long or the same glow bugs we throw all day long, you're going to throw something different, spark their interest, and they might bite it. Side pressure. I mentioned that people hook fish, and these fish, they let them return to the Great Lakes. If you don't have your drag set, if you don't have your rod in the right place, you are just going to be giving that fish carte blanche to run out as much line as possible. See people going to their backing when they don't need to. Yeah, these fish are huge. They're going to run. You should be able to stop them. Go to my YouTube page. Find the video where Art and I do the bleach jug bit in the fly shop. And I explained this to a client the other day. Side pressure. We were even fighting a tilapia. It worked. If you hook a fish and your rod is vertical, you're fighting them with your wimpy little soft tip of that rod. Some itty bitty bitty, like super tiny. And it's made to flex. It's made to be malleable. If you take your rod and rotate it so it's parallel to the water and you bend your rod, if the fish is going downstream and your rod is parallel, now you've got a huge bend in your rod like a bow. And they're going to be fighting that bottom bend, the thickest part of your rod from like the bottom third down, not the wimpy tip, but the stiff part. And you can turn them and you can gain line. And it's amazing how people will go up there expecting to catch huge fish and then having no experience or no idea what to do once they hook it. And sometimes you just sit back. I, I'm not here to guide people. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm helping them. And I'm going to say, man, side pressure, do this, do that. But there's some people you just can't help. And they're going to lose their line. They're going to end up having to walk half a mile downriver chasing the fish. Learn how to fight them. Learn how to do it in the right water. And it's better for the fish. It's better for you. And I'm going to tell you again, side pressure. Don't break your rod on a snag. How many times have I told you people in the nearly 15 years of this podcast there is no fly worth breaking your rod over. And I see people just pop, pop, pop their rod tips. I saw one guy do it, and you know what I heard? Crack. He popped some very nice rod. Two people down for me on Sunday because he was yanking on his rod and putting pressure where it shouldn't be. You yank a rod, you bend the rod, you put pressure where it shouldn't be, and if there's a weak spot in your rod for some reason or not, it's going to snap. What do I do? Well, I point the rod and pull, and that takes pressure off your rod tip. If you can strip out line and just pull line, get a whole bunch of slack coming out of the rod tip, pull on that. There's no rod involved. Put your rod down if you can, and just pull your line like you're on a tug of war. You can do the trick my client showed me during the pandemic where he plucked his line like a guitar, and the fly popped off. That happened for me once up there. But sometimes you just have to know you're going to lose your flies. You go up there with a bunch of flies that are expendable. This is why I tie so many of each color sucker spawn. It's a favorite fly, and I'm going to lose a bunch of them. You need less weight. 
You're going to be playing with weight and depth the whole time you're there, but less weight is just better. I even tried to do a sink tip and it didn't work for me. I tried going weightless, but you're often using more weight than you need. You're not ticking bottom. Your split shot's going to get stuck on the bottom. It's going to get hung up on these rocks and then your tip, it's going to wrap around and it's just a mess and you're going to break off and have to retie it all. Don't ever put your rod down on the ground. Jason had his rod on the ground when we were doing something and a guy stepped on it, but it didn't break. And it was a lucky, lucky chance for us. The chairs were integral on the later days because you can lean your rod up against them and have it off the ground. Leaning it on your backpack, it's not that great of an idea because the wind's going to blow it and it's going to fall down, which is what happened on Saturday, I believe, when Jason's rod tip got stepped on. Do you remember way back in the day when Tom put his rod down? It was a custom-built rod that he had made. I think it had a tuna on the side because Tom used to put little decals. And a, a dude fighting a fish wasn't looking, walked downstream, stepped on his rod, and broke it. I just mentioned a chair is a great thing. If you sit on the ground, that ground's going to suck the heat out of you from higher concentration to lower. You're always going to lose energy to the cold. So if you're sitting on cold cobbles, it hurts. It's hard to get up. Stumps are good, but they're cold. But a chair is nice. A chair is a good place to sit. You can lean your rods against the front or the back when they're not in use. You can put things in the cup holder. If you've got the ability to carry a camp chair with you, do it. Riffles hold fish. Most of my fish were caught in the riffles. Year in and year out, I do really well in the riffles. And then if I get stuck in between riffles, I might convince myself I'm not catching fish. Friday, I caught my fish just below a good riffle. I got to fish the riffles that the guys from Stone Ridge were fishing. And they didn't hook anything up there. So I didn't feel as bad. You always want to fish the water you're not fishing is what it seems to be like. And I had to drop the name Stone Ridge the other day. Caitlin's cousins were in town, and one of them is building a house in the Catskills. And he said it's not far from Stone Ridge. So we're going to go up soon when this place is finished and have a good time. I mentioned it was hard to move in all those layers. Do you want to tell you how hard it is? Well, I looked like Randy Parker from A Christmas Story because I had so many layers on my legs. And then it's hard to move. If you're kneeling down and you try to get up, you just fall over. And at one point, I sat down, unable to move, and I heard a crunch, like a cracking pop. And I just shook my head. And I looked, and my rod was vertical. It was leaning up against the chair. But the butt on a switch rod is kind of long. Turns out I sat on it, broke it off. So I have the tip, the broken off part somewhere, and I got super glue by my front door. And as soon as I find them, I'm going to fix that rod. I don't want to have to send in my switch rod all together to get that thing put back together. So it's going to get duct taped over some super glue. It's probably what's going to happen. Too hard. Climbing over stuff, getting in and out of cars. It's just difficult. Your boots are heavy if you got cleats on them. And it's just a whole awkward thing for me to be wearing that many layers, trying to get up and get down, kneeling, sitting, crawling over logs, etc., I want a new net. Jason's got a hole in his waiter, so let us know. Either say it in the podcast notes, comment sections. If there is one that you're listening to and has one in the I don't know, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. 
Let us know what waders you think Jason should buy. Make and model. Let us know. For me, let me know what new net I should get. I kind of want to get, this is a, a want, not a need. kind of want the big fish pond short-handled net. It's a want, not a need. I've got a short-handled net now that we broke off the, the big frable net. The bag is black, and the net is black, and the rim is black, and the water's black, and you can't see where you're scooping up fish. So if you're able to see the net through the water, I think that might be easier. Sometimes you just stick it in and lift, thinking there's a fish in there, and, and it's completely wrong. I want a new net. So Jason's going to get suggestions for a pair of waders from y'all. What kind of net do you think I should get? I want a short one that's kind of unbreakable that I can put in the back of my car easily, stick it in the back of my waders, stick it in the back of a Watermaster or a Flycraft, what have you, and it's just short, but I can scoop up a big catfish or a steelhead or you know, a big largemouth or a gar or carp. Big fish net, short handled, not too expensive. Let me know what you think are my options. You should be wearing eye protection up there regardless of the weather, whether you can see or not. If you can't see in sunglasses, wear clear ones. Wear yellow light tinted ones. Whatever you do, you don't want to get a hook in your eye. I wear my yellow ones up there. They're made by Costa. They're still a little dark. I had to take them off early morning, late afternoons, but I had eye protection on. And there were a couple times you roll cast or pull a fly out and something flies back at you. And I'm glad that I still have my eyes both protected. I know a dude who's only got sight in one eye. He wears regular glasses all the time with no prescription in them just to prevent that one eye of his that's good from getting damaged. People are not checking their hooks. They're not checking for dings and scratches, and they're not sharpening them. How do I know? I got a lot of time to look around when I'm up there swinging flies. There's really not a whole lot to do when you're just moving your arm. I'm gonna lift my line up, throw it, I'm gonna mend it, follow my rod arm down river, cast back upstream, mend, follow. You got a lot of time to look around, and I'm looking at people. And I know there's a lot of people are snagging and they're not checking hooks. I check my hooks often after most snags, and a lot of times the tip of the hook is going to be dinged or bent. You can straighten that if you're not worried about damaging the integrity of your hook, but it's a good idea to sharpen them and keep them sharp because dull hooks don't go through fish's mouth as easily. Barbless hooks will always go through a fish's mouth more easily. I debated after losing a couple fish, was it the barb? And I decided to fish barb and then I smashed it. My gear's not worth the hole, and it's not worth having to go to Syracuse to get a hook taken out of my flesh or someone else's that I may accidentally hook. Did anyone else see that monster black and white St. Bernard, Newfoundland-looking giant dog in the lower fly parking lot when we were up there? The thing was massive. It was going in and out of an RV. I don't know if that's where it belonged, but it was huge. This dog, you could put a saddle on and put a small child on, and it can ride it. It was massive. I just want to know if you saw it instead of it being a figment of my imagination. I, again, was beyond bundled up from the cold. I told you, Stace and Kevin didn't know who I was even though we were fishing next to each other because the only thing that was exposed was maybe part of my nose and my fingertips. Every part of me was bundled up. Any part of cold and wind that touches me is going to suck the energy and life out of me. And I don't normally stand in the cold for seven to eight hours at a time this is not my normal thing to do. So I want to stay as warm and comfortable as long as possible because every moment I'm not fishing, 
I'm not catching a steelhead. And the whole purpose to go up there is to catch steelhead. What's up with the brown trout, man? You know how many brown trout I saw up there this week? Zero. You know how many I saw the last time I was up? Zero. The year before that? Zero. I think the last brown trout I saw was the one that Thomas may have caught in the upper fly swinging a popsicle in 2018. I don't know what happened up there, but the brown trout, these behemoths, everyone says you got to go to Oak Orchard in New York for big browns now. Well, the Salmon River used to produce freakishly large brown trout. I once caught a brown trout that I thought was a king salmon until we landed it. That was in the Douglaston Salmon Run when I went up with my friend Chris, ladies' man Chris. And he, he moved to Europe, and that was the last we fished together. Speaking of ladies, uh, you wonder why we didn't interview Tinder Boots up there. Well, he was off in Baltimore doing things that Tinder Boots would do, but Tinder Boots was not with his wife. He was with someone else's. But no browns anymore. What's up with that? I used to see people hook huge browns. I just... I just don't see big browns being caught. There was one coho caught, which is pretty cool for late season, seeing that red fish jump out. Told you, I don't see that color in nature very often. But the brown trout thing on the Salmon River, I don't know what's going on. Then we're going to have to call some of the New York uh, Environmental Systems Department and figure out why I'm not hooking browns up there anymore. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Maybe it's just me, but I do remember hooking a lot more fish 15-plus years ago. Maybe I was there more in October, and there were just more steelhead going through, and I was probably hooking a couple salmon that were breaking me off, but two or three a day? I don't know, man. Every year I come back and I say it, but it just feels like... Not hooking in as many fish. Now, go back to point earlier in this talk. More people, more plunking flies, skinny water, chance of catching fish goes down. Yeah, there's crowds. Deal with it. If you want to fish somewhere else, start walking. Go find another river that's a tailwater that has the potential to produce massive browns, massive steelhead, cohos and kings, and other naturally producing fish in here. Uh, if I don't want crowds... And I want steelhead. I don't know where I'm going. It's going to be somewhere else on the river, but I'm pretty sure I knew where the fish were, so I stuck with the crowds. The one thing you hear often up there is, where are you from? How long was your drive? Where are you staying? It's what you talk. You meet someone in D.C., where'd you go to grad school? Huh? Yeah? All right. Did you know so-and-so down there? Where do you live? You inside the Beltway? You outside the Beltway? Up there, it's where are you from? How far did you drive? How's the fishing been? And uh, where are you staying? And then from there, the conversation just goes into whatever you're going to talk about on the river. But it always kind of starts the same. You want to know who your neighbors are. And then after doing this for years, you just know who people are. They go up the same scheduled time as you, and you see people. There was a guy down from me who was roll casting and smoking cigarettes. And I just recognized that casting style and him smoking across from me at Christmas two years ago. It's wild. You just recognize people. I wasn't up at Christmas time, but I recognized him. Be careful when you're wearing all these layers and big clunky boots and you're walking 
to the stream in the pitch black at 5.45 in the morning, there's a lot of exposed roots, and they stick out, and you're going to trip on them. I wiped out, I think, on Saturday morning, and I think Jason wiped out on Sunday morning. When you fall, let go of your rods. You don't want to trip and break your rod, so kind of just let it go. It's something you learn to do being a clumsy guy like myself. Not a whole lot of wildlife to look at when you're up there in this time of year. There's seagulls, and I told you they make an awful noise. They poop when they're flying over the river. A couple of those almost got me. Woodpeckers and bald eagles, nuthatches, some hawks, and a couple of crows. Luckily, I didn't come across any living or dead porcupines this year. Never really see any deer up there. I do hear gunshots. That's probably why. Not used to hearing gunshots down here. So when I hear them up there, it takes you back a little bit. And then, um, just wonder why there's not more things out eating all these dead salmon. Uh, just where are the foxes and raccoons? You know, the animals out here will scavenge for anything. I don't know if they don't eat them just because they don't like them, but you would think that stuff would get broken down a little faster by animals. Why did my rod freeze up when I was swinging flies and no one else's was? Jason was swinging flies. He had a thick head on his rod. I have no idea why I was the only one freezing up. It was weird. Food cooked on the solo stove tastes better than food cooked on a gas stove. I should have heated soup up. Even though the soup may have come from a can, it still would have tasted better heated up on the solo stove. And how about Snoop Dogg coming out with his I'm going smokeless and every news outlet, every social media had to pick it up. Snoop Dogg squitting ganja. Well, that was misinterpretation. He was actually advertising solo stoves and their smokeless capabilities. So to hear last week that Snoop Dogg was doing the commercials for solo stove was pretty odd. If you still want to buy one, I'll get a little bit of commission. You can click on my link tree in any social media or just go to robsnowwhite.com and click on Solo Stove and that affiliate link should work. Should have brought a skillet and I should have brought bacon and eggs or something else. There was time where you could sit on shore and nobody was coming to take your spot. Could have made myself a big hearty meal. Soup up there just gets cold fast because it's cold out and that heat is getting sucked out into the surrounding environment just like your body heat does. And maybe bacon and eggs can be eaten faster. Remember that for next time. It's been a while since we cooked bacon up there. The weird hog sucker fish I caught was Hypentelium nigricans, the hog sucker fish. There was not a single pattern for me that worked better than others up there. I had my confidence flies, stone flies, mayfly nymphs, Flies that can be interpreted as a stonefly or mayfly, sucker spawns, crystal meths, eggs. All these flies that I thought would be killer up there weren't. Maybe just some years are better than others. Some fish choose other flies. I don't know. But I tied up a whole bunch of stuff. And not much of it really worked out. Flies that I thought would work just don't. But you know what? I'm not a steelhead. Whatever, man. And again, materials that I thought would work didn't. A classic old school traditional Scottish salmon fly would be yarn tied to a string and the fish's teeth would get caught on it and they would drag him in. It's basically what we do with gar. I've got these really cool Angora sucker spawns. Never caught a fish on them. 
I didn't get anything on a three loop pink lady. I didn't get anything on woolly buggers, San Juan worms, glow bugs, just weird stuff. What you expect doesn't happen up there. The thermostat in my hotel room was messed up. I think the first night, Jason and I probably lost two pounds just schwitzing in the room because it was so hot. Parts of the digital display weren't working, so you couldn't tell if it was a six or an eight. And if it was a five or a six, so we weren't really sure where in the sixties or seventies our room was. I guess we had a thermometer that would have worked, but thermometers would have been in the gear bags. And honestly, it looked like the predator's arm thing when he starts counting down to blow up Arnold when he's supposed to get to the chopper. That alien's got that countdown thing on his arm. That's what the thermostat looked like. What is the deal with that awesome, huge Victorian house? in Altmar, the one that is across almost from the old schoolhouse where Donna used to stay. I don't, did I talk about this earlier? I don't know if you're a big, you know, playing in the band fan, but when Donna would belt out and just sing crazy on that, not my fan. I like her on the studio albums, you know, some Sunrise, some France. Don't necessarily need Donna singing wailing stuff all the time. Now you can get that bumper sticker that says, even Donna needs some fans, but I get back to the story now. There's a huge Victorian between the Tailwater Lodge and Melinda's, and it looks abandoned, but it is one of the coolest looking houses I've ever seen. Last but not least on my list here of post-fishing thoughts, Dirty Bill says it's good to hook two fish in a day considering those last few days. And he lives up there. He's been guiding there for a long time. If he says the fishing's tough, I'm going to believe him. So I wasn't discouraged that we were not hooking fish crazy left and right and everyone was netting each other's fish. It, it was a pretty good trip. I had a good time. There's no regrets up there. Jason and I both had a blast. I want to start planning right now for the next trip. I think we're going to go up in January or February on a three-day weekend. And the stuff that I'm going to bring back with me is going to be here in the gear wins stuff i'm not bringing back it's going to go in the gear fail list let's talk about gear wins my cleats were awesome this year i never felt like i was really going to slip or fall or wipe out i've done that before on the salmon river i used to go up with the sims they're awesome boots studded leather boots and i felt great up there and then i got my corkers and felt great but those big spikes weren't always the best and the suggestion of using spikes and the hex bolts and gluing them in was absolutely brilliant idea. And I felt safe the whole time walking. I felt safe the whole time walking up there. The biggest thing that I want to tell you was how much I loved that electric vest. That electric vest was just incredible. And I should not have waited so many years being the skinny guy that I am. I wear it in my house. I wear it taking naps. I took a nap in the back of my car, driving back from the trip. You can turn it on. You can turn it off easily, high, medium, low. The battery goes for a long time. It never died in a full day of fishing up there. And it looks good. It fits. It's snug. It's comfortable. I think I was really able to fish sunrise to sunset because of that vest. Just warmth kept me going, kept me motivated, kept me cheery and jolly the whole time electric vest who knew 
Yellow lenses are fantastic in low light. Never took out my amber lenses except for the drive up and the drive back when it got sunny. Everything else was yellow lenses for low light. My fleece union suit. Why do I wear these fleece bib things that have huge fleece legs and then this kind of mid-layer tank top built into it? Well, the main reason is it keeps me warm up and down. It's kind of a pain to take off if you got to go into the woods and go to the bathroom. But the warmth part is key. Even today, when I went to CVS to get my flu shot, my undershirt, my long sleeve flying the flat shirt, which has a lot of holes in it, and I still think it's the most comfortable long sleeve tee I own, it came out from, from under my jeans, and there was that cold patch. It was 38 degrees walking into CVS, and I didn't like it. And that was only for a moment. Now imagine me being out there sunrise to sunset with a gap between my pants and my shirt from pulling up my waders, moving waiter belts, bending down, lifting my arms, etc. That cold spot of bare skin against your waders really sucks. Something I gave up a long time ago. And I'm always going to wear bibs over my base layers to prevent that. That one little piece of cold can ruin my day. Nippers with file. I found them in my closet somewhere. I, there was no bag or label. I don't know who makes them, but they're little black nippers with a file on them. Two birds with one stone. I can cut things. I can sharpen things. I didn't have to dig into my backpack for my normal file. Jig hooks were awesome. I told you I got this pheasant tail jig. I don't know if it's the angle they move, but the big steelhead I caught on the pheasant tail was on the jig hook. That's awesome. And I have got a ton of non-jig pheasant tails, I fished those two, but I'm going to go for a jigged one as my preference. My wagon was awesome. That would have been cool. I could have dragged that upriver with me, probably. My red wagon, I get made fun of all the time. My girlfriend finally accepts how awesome it is. But able to do one trip from the car to the room or from the room to the car, having everything with you was awesome. It just made life super easy, especially when my back was hurting. Yeah. My stove. Yeah, I've got this cool little stove that you connect to a, a gas can and turn on and there's a button that sparks and ignites it and it takes up no space. It's really cool. But having a hot fire, it's a primal thing in you that you like fire. You want to be around fire. You warm your hands by it. It keeps the scary animals away at night. This is daytime, so we're cooking on it. We're not keeping anything away from it as long as you don't backcast your line over it. It's a small, smoldering little canister, the Solo Stove. And it is one of my favorite things. Ice scraper mitt. My former father-in-law gave me a mitt with an ice scraper built into it. So your hand doesn't get cold, especially if you're pushing snow or ice off the uh, window. Nothing gets in your gloves. That thing was awesome for Sunday morning. No, it was Monday morning that Jason and I slept in and went out and there was frost. The battery lamp charging device that Jason had on him was pretty cool. Otherwise, we would have had to use our phones to walk to the river. Headlamps are better because your hands are free. And again, you don't want to have your exposed fingers carrying your aluminum net on the walk in in the morning because it's super cold. Mirage Flashaboo. I can't tell you how much I loved the look of Mirage Flashaboo. It's got a pearlescent look to it when I'm in here, but on the river, it was dark and kind of oily, iridescent looking like a spot in a parking lot. Did I tell you this story in the iridescent podcast that 
have a friend who used to tell his kids that those spots on parking lots where kids got run over for kids to be more careful. And I told my daughter that, and she believed me for years and be like, look, a kid got ran over there in the Trainer Jones parking lot. That's too bad. It's pretty funny. D rib. I like to use the crafting round stuff, but a D rib just gives a little more buggy taperness to each articulated representative section of your fly. I don't know if the fish can see that up close, but I, I like it. I already talked about my chair. I'm going to throw it out. It, it kind of broke on this trip and Jason's chair broke. So maybe I'll just get us a two pack for next time. Black diamond headlamp. It's awesome when you have a battery to fill in. When you don't have enough batteries, it sucks. But a black diamond headlamp with a battery in it, it's pretty awesome. Under Armour Stormwear Hoodie. I got that at a thrift store. It is a thicker, heavier Under Armour hoodie. And this one is size large, so I can fit lots of layers underneath it. It's got that thick hood I can pull over. I was always the, oh, cotton kills. You can't wear hoodies out. You got to wear wool and fleece. Nah, man, I'm wearing this thing now. I don't know if it's cotton. It's all poly something. But water doesn't really get absorbed into it. It keeps my ears, neck, and head warm. Gives me a little bit extra shade on the days where I'm not wearing a baseball hat with a bill. They're thick. They're cozy. And I suggest you look for one. My new jacket. So last year I lost my jacket. Gave myself a year to find it. Never found it. Did some research. What brand puffy, insulated, hooded, warm jacket am I going to wear? And I went with the Sims Extreme Insulated Hoodie Jacket in black. It was awesome. I like the cuff on it. It's wide. So your wrist can go in and out with gloves. It's not getting caught. There's no wrist cuffs to Velcro down in line to get caught on. Well thought out warm jacket. Haven't really used it in really bad precipitation, bad snow or rain yet. My old jacket was 100% weatherproof. That thing was great. This thing, we're still put into the test. Oh, Jason's backup battery with light. I already mentioned that. So what did Jason have that I mentioned earlier? Lamp. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's it for my gear. The Regal Vice, you know, was awesome. Pedestal. Loon scissors for tying. Uh, love my bone dry solar res, my solar res flashlight, uh, my bobbins, Griffin bobbins, just cool stuff. Everything worked out. We had a good time. Let's tell you what didn't work. Uh, spicy tofu noodle soup. Too spicy. I have an extra one, so I'll bring it for you next time if you want it. Butane lighters. Didn't work. I used to have this awesome three-burner cigar butane lighter. I don't even know if that thing would have worked up here. Maple bourbon. Now, the first time I had maple bourbon was at my first ICAST IFTD. And I was with Jay and the guys from doing all of the, the Trout Bum movies. And it was pretty gross. Dirty Bill showed up with a bottle and I took a sip and mm -mm, no thank you. My net, that was a fail. Just the handle popped out. It was too cold to try and see if it was like frozen in place or whatnot. But yeah, the net failed. People playing music. I told you I don't bring my turtle box now down to the quarry. Other people don't want to hear what I have to play. In fact, most people don't want to hear what I have to play, even in my own house. So let alone people who just drove several hours, maybe 11, 
if you came from Maine, to go fishing, and you got to hear someone else's music on the river. Now, when Ramble on Rose came on, I was like, cool, man, that's fine. But if you're out there blasting music from your phone or a portable speaker and it's crowded, think about other people. Be considerate. If you don't net a kid's fish, it's bad karma from you and you should go pound sand. Take litter out with you. Don't leave litter behind. You always find the coffee cups and cigarette butts, monofilament. Just throw it in your gear bag. Take it with you. Don't leave it for someone else. Don't be that guy. Don't ruin it for the rest of the people, which is why we can't fish that section of the black hole anymore. Man, I would love to have a Taco Bell in Pulaski. I probably would have gone on Sunday night or Monday night for dinner and then not gotten a big meal on my way home that knocked me out. The last big failure up there is no Fryhofer cookies. My dad likes himself a box of Fryhoffers every now and then, and don't ever get to bring them down to him. I am going up to Manhattan soon. I'll look there. We're going to see fish at Madison Square Garden. If you're going one night and you want to find us beforehand, send me a note. Maybe I'll find Fryhoffers in Manhattan. But I always look when I'm in Pulaski and the stores are like, yeah, no. Tops usually says they should carry them, but they don't. People say go to Burn Dairy. And then there was a grocery store named after some guy like Frank's or Smitty's or something. And I was told to go there, but there's none around. So no Fryhoffers. And that rounds up part three of this podcast. It's my thoughts of what I do every fall is take this crazy wild fishing trip. I'm going to do a crazy wild fishing trip in the spring and it's going to be warmer and I'll have to carry all this stuff with me. Next podcast is going to be my short gear guide for 2023. If you got some stocking stuffers or presents you want people to buy you, that should be up in a couple of days. Thanks for downloading. Go share this with a friend. Thanks for purchasing anybody's gear that I mentioned from Fly Shack to Sims to stopping in Melinda's and saying hi. Have a good December, y'all. Hopefully now you've got a better understanding of all this crazy steelhead business. Hooking into a steelhead is one of the craziest things you can do with a fly rod. It's absolutely just berserk from the moment it happens. You see a fish splash and you think it's someone else's and then your line moves and all of a sudden your rod gets torn out of your hands and it's on. And it's absolutely crazy. And I'm willing to put up with the crowds. And remember, the etiquette on the stream is just like that of urinals when you're on the Salmon River. You don't want to pee next to anybody at a urinal just like you don't want to fish directly next to somebody on the Salmon River. Imagine you go into a professional sporting event, you go into that men's room and you see 40 urinals all lined up. Now, granted, you want to use the furthest one away from that only person in there. But if it's completely filled up, you want to have one or two spaces between you. Three at best, urinal etiquette. Now that's about how spaced you want to be like anglers on a stream. There's people peeing at a urinal. Now I could have gone with birds on a wire, but that just wouldn't have been as much fun. So if anybody asks you about stream etiquette, just tell them it's just like going to pee. You don't want to pee next to anybody. You want to have several spaces in between you. Write that down. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.